0: Ephesians 5. Now, I don't know if you think much about walking. The last time I thought about walking was when I bought this smartwatch at the end of last year. They told me that apparently if I walked 10,000 steps a day, I would lose weight. (laughs) And I think I want a refund. (laughs) We don't often think about how we walk. But it's actually integral to who we are. I'm told one of the first lessons you learn in acting school is how to walk because you can tell who someone is by how they hold themselves. Can you imagine Jack Sparrow walking without a limp and without that kind of stagger that he has? Can you imagine Tony Stark without that swagger in his step? Can you imagine Mr. Darcy? Who here knows who Mr. Darcy is? Oh, Davy with a big smile on his face. <laughs> There you go. I didn't until I started dating Mathia. But can you imagine Mr. Darcy without him being upright, stiff, unwelcoming? We all have a distinctive walk. In fact, according to research, we view someone's walk in the same way as they view their face. That is, we make assumptions about them. In the same way, we make assumptions about people's facial appearance. So Rohan had a beard last week, and we thought he was old and mature. Now he's clean-shaven, and we think he's young, and you can fill in the blank. The assumptions aren't always right, but the one who walks quickly and upright, we think, is assertive. The one who's slouched and drags their feet, we think, is lazy. Each person has a characteristic way of walking. It's a bit like your fingerprint. It's unique to you. My dad has low shoulders, never swings his arms. I drag my feet along the ground. It, drags, it irritates Mathia to no end. In fact, the Chinese have actually picked up on this idea. Uh, I read this week that they've developed this thing called walking recognition software. That is... They have surveillance cameras, and they can ID you based on how you walk. And it's actually better than facial recognition. Because think about it, right? If your back is turned or your face is covered, they can still work out who you are. And they're watching you right now. (laughs) (laughs) That is, your walk is like your fingerprint, It IDs you. It tells you who you are. The reason I bring up walking this afternoon is because that's the main idea in Ephesians 5. Just look at verse 15 on your outline. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Paul is concerned with our walk. Now, why is he concerned with our walk? It's because so far in Ephesians, us humans have been able to glimpse into the throne room of God. We've actually seen God's cosmic plan. And his plan is to bring everything under the feet of Jesus. And part of that plan is to unite Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, Because if you were a Jew, you were part of God's people. You had God's promises. You had access to God through the temple, through the law. And if you were not a Jew, a Gentile, you were excluded, a foreigner. But in Ephesians, God has gotten rid of this divide. And it was through sending Jesus to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. Such that the way you access God was no longer through the law, but through the blood of Jesus. It's here on Ephesians 2.13. It's going to come up on the screen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one. Everyone is brought near through Jesus. The Jews through Jesus, the Gentiles through Jesus. So instead of Jew and Gentile, there's one new humanity, the church. The church. And in it are Jews, Gentiles, Chinese, Anglo, Indian. We all have a new identity. We are all God's people. And so chapter 5 asks, does your walk reflect that? If the surveillance camera of heaven zooms in on your life, would your walk reflect that you belong to God? What would it look like to walk appropriately? Now, we're not going to look at the whole of chapter 5. Okay, It's just for the sake of time. We're actually going to look at the middle section, which will give us the main argument. So, in light of who we are, he actually talks about two things that expresses our walk. It's going to come up. There's two points. It's firstly unity with one another. Uh, And in light of unity with one another, he has a case study of marriage. So, first point, unity with one another. Second point, unity in marriage. So, firstly, unity with one another. Have a look at verses 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're told here to walk as people who are wise and not foolish. Now, we often think of wisdom as making good life decisions. I managed recently to get my mum to admit that I was smarter than my sister. To which she quickly replied, but she is smarter at life. That is, you might be book smart, Kevin, but your sister has wisdom. That is, we think wisdom is being life smart. But is that what is on view here? And so I want us to pause and ask this question, which is, what is wisdom in Ephesians? Because I suggest that wisdom here has a slightly different nuance to what we think. And understanding this nuance will help us understand these verses. So I've got one reference that's going to come up on the screen. And it refers to uh, wisdom in another part of Ephesians in chapter 3. I want you guys to talk in your tables. You have two minutes. What is wisdom here? Okay. If you're a uh, keen being, you get by really quickly. There's two other references on the bottom in chapter 1 to wisdom. Okay. But focus on chapter 3. What is wisdom in Ephesians? Go for it. You have two minutes. Alright, some brave souls. What do you think wisdom is in Ephesians? Someone from the left side of the room. My left over here. I'm going to pick on Will and Connor, your table. What did you guys come up with? Uh, uh, humility. Humility? Wisdom is humility. Okay, how did you get Humility. As a follow-up question, as a trap. No. Um, so my first thought, which I was discussing on the table, is that it's very similar to a chapter, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, 16, where he pretty much talks about he's the very worst of sinners, and Christ Jesus is using him as an example to others. And it's like how in this verse, he is the very least of all saints. He has the humility to understand that. And through that, God is using him as an example to others to spread God's wisdom, to spread the wisdom of humility and other aspects of inclusion. So, if you go from Ephesians through 1 Timothy back to Ephesians, you get humility? Yes. Correct. <laughs> uh, any other? Uh, yep, Caspian? I think um, being careful and also being careful with what you know and what's given to Being careful? I was looking at um, verse, verse 8 and he likes from us with all wisdom and insight, he has made manifest the mystery of the poor. And I think yeah. that it's like, did it carefully. Yeah. Okay. That's one eight, right? Chapter one, verse eight. Great. Now, oh, there's a few hands. Emmy. Um, very different track. I think um, wisdom is God's plan in Jesus slash redemption slash from verses 17 to 19, in chapter one, it's something centered around God. Yeah, yeah. Centered around God's God's plans and knowledge. I heard that around the room a little bit. Right? Knowledge, plans of God. If that was what you said, I think you're actually spot on. Wisdom in Ephesians is actually tied to God's mystery. It's actually understanding that God's plans and purposes that have been revealed. Wisdom is actually the knowledge that all things, including Jew and Gentile, are united as one under Jesus. You see that nuance? It's not generic good living. It's living in light of God's plans and purposes. Which is why, coming back to chapter 5 in front of you, we're to make the best use of time. The world in time is heading somewhere. It's to the lordship of Jesus over all things. And we live knowing that. It's why verse 17, we understand the will of God. Because what is the will of God in Ephesians in chapter 1? It's actually to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus. And so to walk wisely is to walk in light of this. It's not generic Christian morality. It's it's understanding that God is at work in the gospel to bring all things under Jesus. And understanding this changes our walk. We took our friend from Sydney for a walk around the lake last weekend. We strolled around leisurely. We took photos. We even patted a bird. It was a dare. And the bird, for some reason, let me pat him or her. But anyways, side note. But we couldn't help noticing that as we were walking around that people dressed in pink kept running past us. And there were people cheering us on, offering us water. And we discovered that when we crossed the finish line, we were at the Mother's Day Classic. You see, we walked the same route. But having a right understanding of the situation is the difference between a leisurely stroll and a sprint. Paul says, make sure your walk shows you know what time you're in. How is our walk supposed to be different? Now we get to the nitty-gritty. It's unity with one another. Have a look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, to understand this verse, we first have to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So, one last time, we're going to do this. I have two passages that's going to come up on the screen. They're references to the Spirit in Ephesians. These references help us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit here. So, again, in your groups, two minutes. How do these references to the Spirit in Ephesians help us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit here? Two minutes, go for it. Trickier question, isn't it? That's what I heard from around the room. Tricky question. Let's hear from a few people. Hands up if you have thoughts. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Being built together. Sorry? Being built together. Yep. How do you see that? In the second verse. <laughs> In the second verse? There's a unity of the Spirit? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Um, I guess the way I kind of see it is so. I am a body and this body has a spirit and so and you know that spirit has this body. So if we're all filled with the same spirit, then that kind of makes us one body. So that's how it unifies us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a take. A few a few nods around the room. One last person. Also it's acted out in love. things in the One last person could be the same person. It's acted out in love at the end. I think that's spot on. Because look at chapter 2. The Spirit is what unites us together, Jew and Gentile, right? It's by the Spirit. Chapter 4, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is to be filled with the Spirit, I think, in Ephesians. It's to live in a way that reflects our unity. It's doing the things that keeps building one another up. It's actually why the list in verse 19 onwards are the things that involve words to one another. Speaking. Singing. It's actually a unity idea here. The key idea in this passage is being filled with the Spirit. Singing, speaking, submitting, they're all things that flow out of this that express unity. So instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Now, as a side point, just notice that for Paul, at the heart of disunity at the center of debauchery, reckless living. What is it? It's drunkenness. You don't actually have to look far in this world to see how true that is. That is, alcohol actually tears communities apart. There was a national report in 2019 that looked at the national alcohol strategy. Alcohol was the second leading cause of drug-related death, second only to tobacco a quarter of all frontline police officers' time is taken up by alcohol-related crime, or family violence incidents, alcohol was involved 29% of the time. They're just a few stats, but you get the picture. When things fall apart in the community, alcohol is usually not far away. There's nothing wrong with a drink or two. But in Australia, we celebrate drinking. We can't socialise without it. In ANU, it's synonymous with going out. In the colleges, you can't have fun without it. Not many go out and choose to drink only according to the legal driving limit. It just sounds silly if you choose to do that. You see, we might not get drunk, but I wonder if we find the line and we try and get as close to it as possible. Paul says, don't fill yourself with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And verse 19 has a list of things that builds unity. It's singing. We don't sing in Australian culture anymore. The best thing is a Swannies game or a U2 concert. I went to a Lebanese wedding once and they knew how to sing. You know, when the bride walked in, drums, dances, everyone joined in. Heck, even I joined in. You sing when there's joy, thanksgiving, when you're together in the same thing. If you follow Jesus, you have the best reason in the world to sing. And notice it's our words. As we sing, we build each other up. We walk with thanksgiving with words, in song, together. Unity. And we walk in submission to one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I dare say, submission is seen as a dirty word today. I dare say it it almost feels, you could say, Oppressive. But society cannot function without submission. It's actually vital for unity. And we submit in everyday situations constantly without even knowing it. On the weekend, I helped Steve pick up a couch. We realized halfway that we should have called Brendan, and Steve shouldn't have called me for obvious reasons. But when Steve was giving me directions in the car to pick up the couch, I submitted. When he had no idea how to read the signs in the apartment complex and I said, follow me, he submitted. When well, he walked the couch a kilometre back to his place because it wouldn't fit in the car, and I said I needed a break every 200 metres, he submitted to that. That is, you do it all the time to the appropriate authority in how you live. Society without submission is called Anarchy. It's like looking after my two-year-old niece. She is the cutest girl in the world. But when you ask her to do something, she gives you the cutest smile in the world and then proceeds to ignore you. (laughs) Can you imagine a society full of two-year-old nieces? Submission has nothing to do with value. Eskoma was pulled over by a copper. He will have to submit to that copper. But he's no less of a person. And so it's a unity idea here. We ought to submit to one another to the appropriate authority. That is how we should walk. Our walk expresses unity with one another. Now, Paul then explains this submission in a number of different relationships. Marriage, parenting, masters, and servants. For the sake of time, we're just going to focus on the first case study. And that's our second point, it's unity in marriage. Now, I dare say this is the elephant in the room. Uh, Who here has seen Kim's convenience store? Oh, there's a few. Yeah, that warms my heart slightly. Uh, I'll I'll paint you a picture even if you haven't seen it. When Janet, the daughter, was forced to go back to church, they're Korean, so a lot of cultural uh, Christian Koreans, that's part of the... Um, backstory of this, Uh, when she was forced to go back to church and they wanted to show how outdated church was, there was a scene when they got someone up the front of church to read the Bible. And what passage did they read? It was this one. It was Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's a part of the Bible we tend to flinch at. From the outset, I want to say that the Bible is not advocating a return to 1950s traditional marriage. There are good things about the 1950s. You could probably ask Richard. <laughs> Can't see his face, so anyways. <laughs> there you go. Steve's preaching next week, news. Just joking. There are good things about the 1950s, but there's also bad things too. The model here isn't the 1950s traditional view of marriage. There's actually a better model in view. And to understand why submission is good, we actually have to understand the model marriage is pointing towards. I've got up here a picture of two buildings. The one on the left is a picture of the chapel I went to at Bible College. They called it Cash Chapel. They modelled it after the building on the right, which is King's Chapel at Cambridge. You can see, they're identical buildings. Kind of, right? Kind of. See, the idea was that as you walked into Cash Chapel, you understood what King's Chapel was like. The pews were facing each other, like in Ephesians 5. You actually spoke and sang to one another and looked at each other as you did that. You had the organ at the back, you had the pulpit at the front. Everything was the same, such that as you walked into Cash Chapel, you had the sense that you were at Cambridge. Which sounds a bit pretentious now that I say that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Except it wasn't really. Everything was smaller. It was less extravagant. That is, it was a model of something greater. Earthly marriage is a model of something greater. It's a model of the marriage between Christ and the church. And submission is part of this model. Verse 23 For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The model for the wife is the church. The wife's not silent. But there's actually a listening and a following as the church to Christ. Which, to be honest, might make us feel uncomfortable. Because it actually ups the ante on submission. But the model is not 1950s conservative marriage. You can't actually understand the model until you see the other half. So let's see the other half and then we'll come back to submission. Verse 25 speaks to the husbands. And if wives are to submit, what would you expect Paul to say to the husbands? What would you think? You would think maybe something like, lead. Husbands, lead your wives. But interestingly, it doesn't. What does it say? Love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If Christ and the church ups the ante on submission, it also does so for love. It's not husbands think of her first. It's not husbands serve her. The call is greater. It's husbands die for her. Lay down your life as Christ did for the church. Christ is the one who makes her holy. Just notice that in the text. It's not the husbands. But husbands are to model themselves after Jesus. As Christ went to the cross, verse 28, in the same ways husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Those are the parts of the picture together in this model. The model is love and submission, hand in hand. When I read these verses, I can't help but think of my father. Uh, He doesn't express his love in words, uh, but he has four grandkids. My sister's kids, just to be clear. But each one of them growing up, when they pooed their nappies, knew straight away to go to my dad. You didn't have to tell them. It was automatic, because who changed the nappies? It was my dad. He didn't even live with him. He just visited. <laughs> because he was the man that did the thing that no one else wanted to do. And he never complained. See, I grew up in a household, and it's such a privilege, where you always knew that when no one else wanted to do the hard thing, my dad would and he didn't need to be asked. The dishes were washed, the garbage went out. He did it for me and my sister, but he did it for my mum. It's a beautiful model, isn't it? Of someone laying down his life self-sacrificially for his wife. Men like this don't grow on trees. So men, a word to you. We live today in an entitlement culture. You can change degrees two or three times, travel the world, commit to nothing, and when you're 30, society says, good on you. You've been trying to find yourself. The problem with an entitlement culture is that the person we think about most is me. And we don't learn sacrifice. And we don't learn love. If you don't lay down your life for your sisters now, you will not do that when you're 30. The man of Ephesians 5 doesn't grow on trees. You see, not everyone will get married, but even if you don't, grow into that man now, such that even if you're single in the future, you're the man that women cherish and value because you cherish and value them. Walk differently to the men of this world. Submission in marriage has a stigma because men have failed time and time again. Men, walk differently to the men of this world. And when we have this picture of love, can you see how submission fits in? My dad drove three hours to Canberra yesterday, and my mom submitted to him. It's submission and love, hand in hand, not two people fighting against one another, but one following, the other loving, and both walking in the same God-honoring direction. It's unity in marriage. But the model is Christ in the church, and we'll finish here. Uh, look at verse 31. Paul quotes Genesis, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. From the very outset, when God created man and woman in Genesis, he designed earthly marriage to be temporary, to be but a model of something greater to Christ and the church. You see, from before time, he has chosen us. And he has planned that Jesus would die for us. Such that no matter where we are in life, single or married, we're all actually caught up in the love of Christ for his church. You see, I love my wife to bits. And I'm a terrible husband half the time. The best husband in this world, heck, even Mr. Darcy, is a pale comparison to the love of Christ For his church. How amazing is it that we're married to him? And so walk in unity. When the surveillance camera of heaven zooms in on your life, let's be people who give thanks, who sing, who love, who submit. Such that as people see us, they glimpse into the throne room of God and see his plans and purposes. And they see the love of Jesus for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the earthly model of marriage, but how it points to the love of Christ and the church. Thank you that we have been changed and that shapes who we are. And so we pray that our walk will be different that it will be countercultural to this world, such that as people see us walking together, they will see Christ and His love for us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.